Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Freedom of Species, a show that brings animal advocacy to the airwaves. It's a radio program dedicated to raising awareness about issues concerning animals from animal advocacy to, importantly, appreciation. Live streaming and recent podcasts are available via the 3CR website and all the podcasts are available from the Freedom of Species website and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Emma Townsend. Hey y'all, this is Natalie from Blue King Brown and you're listening to 3CR. Support community radio and your local music scene. Subscribe now. We are going to start off with some news today. From news.com.au, will cage eggs soon be phased out? An article uh, that appeared there on October the 5th. The RSPCA is calling for cage eggs to be banned once and for all as the government undertakes the first review of poultry farming standards in more than 10 years. With McDonald's, Woolworths, Coles and Subway all taking steps to phase out cage eggs from their supply chains, animal rights groups say the tide is turning against the practice. But industry groups argue there is no way to meet the demand for eggs with free-range or barn-laid varieties. Australians eat an average of 213 eggs every year and to transfer the 11 million hens in cages would be logistically impossible, producers claim. They have likened the situation to the debate around renewable energy, just as coal must continue to provide baseload power for the foreseeable future. There's no way we can meet our desire for eggs without cages. Bead Burke is an egg producer from Tamworth, New South Wales, whose family has been in the business since his grandfather set up their farm in the 60s. He argues the debate is much more complicated than animal rights groups make out. There's a lot more to it if we're going to deliver serious quantities of eggs 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Once consumers hear the full story, they start to realise it's not simply a matter of having the bird outside of confinement. Mr Burke, who has 106,000 cage hens and 27,000 barn hens, said he had an open-door policy. Yes, confinement is something we can't win the argument on, he says. From the day that they're housed, they're in that cage for the rest of their life. But in all other welfare aspects... Food, safety, health, not to mention delivering a price that our consumers expect. I can assure you our cages will exceed your expectations. Mr Burke also argues free range isn't all it's cracked up to be, with hens prone to disease from drinking water contaminated with their own faeces. He says when they're in cages, at least you have some way of controlling those internal and external parasites and bugs. What many people didn't realise, he added, was that the cage egg production system often carried the free range. Nearly every single producer that has a significant number of free-range hens also has a cage production system. Animals Australia spokeswoman Lisa Chalk said Australia was lagging behind other developed nations on this issue. Continuing to confine millions of birds this way in Australia is indefensible, especially when other countries have long recognised and acted on this cruelty, she said. 
You cannot look at poor hens crammed together in cages and morally justify the lives they are forced to lead. We bring these birds into this world only to suffer. Cage eggs may be cheaper, but it is the birds that are paying a dreadful price. Ms Chalk said on animal welfare issues, consumers had driven change much quicker than legislators had been prepared to. Quote, the Poultry Code was last reviewed in 2001, at which time the European Union made the decision to phase out the barren battery cage. But in Australia, the decision was made to just increase cage sizes slightly by about the size of a matchbox per hen. So at a time the rest of the world recognised that battery cages were cruel and needed to be phased out, Australia was resisting change. That's why in 2015 we're still having this conversation. Miss Chalk said the big problem was that consumers had, over many years, become accustomed to buying cheap eggs, but they were never told the truth that cheaper equals crueler. What we found, however, is that as people become informed, overwhelmingly they are choosing not to support cruel systems. Woolworth says it is on track to be entirely cage-free by 2017, while Coles has committed only to remove cage eggs from its home brand range. Fast food giant McDonald's says 25% of its eggs are now cage-free and that it is on track to meet its target of a 2017 phase-out. In the US and Canada, McDonald's has committed to be cage-free by 2025. More than 40 IGA stores around the country have stopped stocking cage eggs in a move prompted by graphic footage obtained last year by Animals Australia of a Pace Farms egg supplier. Earlier this year, Aldi came under fire after a social media campaign by the RSPCA called on shoppers to demand the German discounter ban cage eggs. Bulk discount chain Costco also refused to cave to pressure. The Poultry Code was last reviewed in 2001. The current review, which brings together federal, state and territory governments, is being led by Animal Health Australia and the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. The European Union moved to outlaw battery farms in 1999, with the 13-year phase-out taking effect in 2012. Hens may still be kept in so-called furnished cages. According to the Australian Egg Corporation, 53% of eggs sold are cage eggs, 38% are free-range, 8% are barn-laid and 1% are specialty. The proportion of cage-free eggs sold has steadily been growing. A spokeswoman for the RSPCA said cages must be removed from egg production once and for all. With so many major retailers, food outlets and manufacturers already switching to cage-free eggs or committing to in the near future, it's clear that Australian consumers don't support the cruel confinement of layer hens in cages, she said. When the Poultry Code was last reviewed more than a decade ago, the RSPCA fought hard to have cages disallowed. Sadly, a small increase in cage size was the only change to be implemented. As far as the RSPCA is concerned, a cage is a cage. No increase in size or addition of furnishings will make it an adequate environment for inquisitive creatures like hens to spend their lives. Emmanuel Dufresne, legal counsel with animal rights group Voiceless, said cages were legalised cruelty. It's the biggest shame of the animal welfare regulatory framework that you can do to a pig or a chicken or a cow what would be horrendous and terrific and illegal if performed on a dog or a cat, he said. There's a disconnect between the animal welfare standards that currently apply and what the community expects. He said part of the problem of the poultry code review process was the disproportionate representation from industry groups from the very beginning, with most animal welfare groups only being invited to make submissions along with the wider community at the final public consultation phase. He says, Standards and guidelines are developed by industry, often using science funded by industry, without adequate consultation with animal welfare groups, he said. The initial draft obviously sets the tone. A spokesman for Agriculture, Minister Barnaby Joyce, said it was the role of the government to support the ongoing growth and development of the $1.6 billion egg industry in line with community expectations. He says the Australian government recognises that all egg production systems have an important role to play. The review of the code is in its initial stages 
and state and territory governments have responsibility for domestic animal welfare issues. All the more reason for an independent animal welfare office. As the code is in review, I thought it was timely to replay an interview with Karen Davis. Karen Davis is an internationally renowned animal rights campaigner. In particular, she has been a leader in animal rights campaigning for our chicken friends. Hi, I'm Liz Dealey from Melbourne Chicken Save. I've got four rescued girls at home, all Isa Browns. Two of them are crippled because they were injured in the sheds. And when they were rescued, they had broken bones, which luckily are healing. They're Chrissy and Red. And I have two other girls, Kath and Kim. Kim is the biggest character of a chicken you could ever hope to find. She doesn't like our cat, Diesel. And she regularly chases him around the garden. And I've seen her... I've walked out and seen the cat running across the garden and wondered what was going on. And there's the chicken, Kim, with a mouthful of his fur. She attacks him if he comes near her. She's got something against him and he is frightened of her. I've seen him jump in the air when she walks up behind him and pecks him on the bum and he will never retaliate. She's the boss. Rosie, as soon as we took on Rosie, we took her home. We had one other chicken. Uh, we had a Isa Brown. As soon as the Isa Brown saw Rosie, who was a smaller little, I think she was a Belvedere, the bully came out and just attacked, 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 attacked. And I'd stand in between them and try and protect Rosie. And it wasn't long. Within the first day, Rosie knew that I was the protector. And if the other brown chicken even looked sideways at Rosie, Rosie would just run across the yard and run behind me and put me in between her and the eyes are brown. She knew that I was looking out for her. And then with a little bit of time, she really trusted me. And if I was sitting down out on the deck, she'd come up to me and want to sit on my lap because she knew that I was the protector. I think she just felt really safe with us. And even the dog used to protect her from the eyes brown. And the dog would, would chase away the eyes brown. And it ended up that Rosie and the dog used to just hang out together. They used to sit in the kennel together on rainy days. They used to eat out of the same bowl you used to see them sitting, sitting in the grass together on a sunny day, just side by side. They became, they were best friends, the chicken and the dog. It was, it was a love story. There are many stories like this I could have put on air today. When I ask people about their chickens or roosters, their faces start brimming with joy and their eyes sparkle as if to say... Someone has finally asked me to share this great secret. Every single story reflects a treasured soul in their eyes. In comparison to this, my heart grounds to a crashing halt. To think of the billions of these birds, we discard every minute in the food industry. Today we have an interview with the pioneering Karen Davis, founder of United Poultry Concerns in America widely published author and a globally respected campaigner for domestic fowl. Karen has written books such as The Holocaust and The Henmaid's Tale, where she looks at the arguments for and against using the Holocaust and indeed African-American slavery as a reference to how animals are farmed today. For a bit of celebrity dazzle, Ira Glass of This America's Life spoke broadly of Karen's influence on him becoming a vegetarian on The Letterman Show. I spoke with Karen by phone from her home in Virginia. Welcome to the show, Karen. Thank you so much, Emma. I'm delighted to be on your show today. Can you share with us your, what I like to call the window moments when you first started to open your eyes to the suffering of animals? Well, first of all, Emma, I would say that as a very young child, I was very sensitive to animals and animal abuse. I did not grow up around chickens, but I did grow up around dogs. And when I grew up in Pennsylvania in a semi-rural county, virtually everybody there, that is the men, hunted. And that is true to this day. So my father always had 
what he called hunting dogs, that he would beagles, that he would train in a very violent way to become completely compliant and really just scared all the time of human beings. It was an awful process. But the thing is, I was very sensitive to that cruelty, even as a very, very young child. And I always hated animal cruelty. I would rescue dogs and try to get my parents to let me keep them. And I also had a very strong affinity of all my life for birds. I would actually have sleepless nights as a very young child if a baby bird would fall out of a tree in our yard, which happened somewhat frequently during the summers. I never even heard of being a vegetarian growing up. But had I been aware of what animals go through to become a piece of meat or to produce eggs or dairy milk and cheese as a child, I would have been traumatized and I know I would have refused to eat those foods. It was really when the 1970s came along and I, like so many other people, were introduced to Peter Singer's book, Animal Liberation. And a number of other things happened in the 1970s, one of which was my trip to the Gulf of St. Lawrence to visit the baby harp seals, uh, the newborn babies with their mothers. This was March of 1974. And I went under the illusion that I was going to be visiting a protected area of the ice flows, and not that I was misled, it's just that I didn't understand the situation. The idea was this was one of the efforts that was being made by the New Brunswick ASPCA to try to influence the Canadian government that tourism would be a, a, a better financial as well as ethical way of treating the seals than clubbing them to death. But what I actually saw when I got there was men who don't even just club seals for economic purposes, but just for sport. And it was a devastating, terrible experience, although very illuminating, that caused me for almost 10 years to be afraid to get involved on behalf of animals in a large institutionalized way. And it was about a decade later, actually in 1983, when a big article appeared in the Washington Post about this person who was described in the title as something like a funny little lady in plastic shoes. And that article was a big profile article of Ingrid Newkirk, who had just then started People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And she had been, for a decade or more, the chief animal control officer in Montgomery County, Maryland, outside Washington, D.C. So she had been doing all this on-the-ground terrible work on behalf of animals, and she was coming into PETA with that full experience of all the horrible things that are done on a daily basis to all kinds of animals all the time. I read this article in 1983, and it was pretty dismissive and snide. Even the, all the powerful things that she was described as doing for animals were kind of treated like a joke, you know, funny lady in plastic shoes and all that. But that article made a huge impression upon me, and I saved it. And then I heard about an event uh, called World Laboratory Animals Day that was going to take place in Washington, D.C., right around that time. And I was kind of scared to go because I was afraid of how upset I was going to be when I saw the images of abused animals and everything, but I went. And there were two images in particular on the tables that were set up by the animal groups on the lawn near the White House. And one was of a non-human primate who had been the subject of a head transplant experiment, who had huge black sutures going around his or her neck under her chin. And then the second image was of a beagle who was all curled up in a cage on wire grid whose skin had been burned off all on one side. And when I looked at the faces of these two animals in particular, I mean, their wounds were horrible enough, but it was the look on their faces that above everything else that just caused me right then and there, that minute, that second, to say to myself, 
that never again would I abandon animals to their fate and to the iniquity of our species because I couldn't bear to know their suffering. And from that moment on, I was a dedicated animal rights activist, and that was 31 years or so ago, or more. <laughs> 3CR, radio that's independent, progressive, and making a difference. You are listening to the Freedom of Species radio show. We are chatting today with Karen Davis, the president of United Poultry Concerns. Anyway, I did my apprenticeship, I would say, not in a formal sense, but in a very uh, intensive, informal sense, through the 1980s in all kinds of PETA demonstrations against rodeos and every type of animal abuse. And it was actually a van that a member of PETA brought down to the eastern shore of Virginia, where I live on the eastern shore of Virginia, which eastern shore is comprised of Maryland, Virginia, and Delaware, which is one of the largest chicken-producing areas of the country. And I had seen pictures of the chickens in the transport trucks, but when I actually saw for the first time ever these chickens loaded into these trucks being driven into the slaughter plant on a big busy highway, tears just poured out of my eyes instantly. And that was one of the first experiences that I had of actual chickens in any situation, actual chickens. Another thing that was very important, in 1985, my then-husband and I moved to a little tiny house that we rented outside Washington, D.C., in an area that was still pretty rural, and uh, it turned out that our landlady would raise about 100 broiler chickens, the chickens who were used for meat production, every year in order to maintain her agricultural tax status. And so I discovered these chickens kind of by accident. I didn't even know they were in this little shed until one day I was walking down this little path on the landlady's property, and lo and behold, I saw something that really caught my attention. There were like feathers floating around in this little shack, and so I went around and I looked inside, and here were about 100 chickens in there, large white chickens. And I ended up starting to visit those chickens in the afternoon. I was working on my PhD in English at the time, and so I would devote my mornings to working on my dissertation. But then in the afternoon, I started taking my book down to this little chicken shack. And the chickens, as soon as they even had a sense of my appearance, they would all be at the little door there. You could see their little faces pressed against the screen, and it was so touching. And I would go in and I would sit down on the dirt floor with them with my books, and you could tell they were so... They just loved the fact that I visited them, and they would sit around me while I sat there, and pretty soon I would not be reading my book at all, but I would be (laughs) talking and chatting with them and paying attention to them and just getting to know them. Of course, then, one day... After about six weeks of this experience, I went down to visit them, and they were all gone. And I I knew it was bad. But I kept peering into the little chicken shack, and I suddenly discovered some movement taking place in there, and I found that when I went inside, there was a very, very crippled hen who had been left behind, whether because she was so small and not considered to be worth sending to slaughter, or whether she had simply been overlooked because she was under a kind of shelf that was covered with a bunch of old farm equipment, old old rusted junk and stuff. And so I gathered her up in my arms, and I uh, took her back to our little house and set her on the carpet, and my husband said, you know, we should name her Viva because she is the one who lived. I credit Viva with these founder of United Poultry Concerns in many ways because her life and she herself and my privilege of spending time with her had such a deep and profound and total influence upon me that, and ultimately so decisive in my decision to found United Poultry Concerns in 1990, that I consider Viva to be a sort of foundational chicken. That story is something that I give out to every new member of our organization, and so many people have told me through the years that my story of Viva touched them so deeply that they had not even 
really realize the personality and the feelings of a chicken until they read my story of Viva. When we consider this, the mutual responsiveness and understanding, it's a very powerful force. There's a story with Sonia that springs to mind. Sonia was one of several hens and roosters who we learned about through somebody who worked at one of those farmer's markets along the road in northern Virginia, which is a very urban area. And this worker there had discovered that they sold not only fruits and vegetables, but behind the scenes there was this chicken house that was very dirty. The chickens were very crowded, and he was horrified to discover that they were selling eggs at this farmer's market from chickens who were living such a miserable life. So he contacted me and United Poultry Concerns about it, and I ended up contacting the people who owned the farmer's market. I asked them if I could visit the chickens, and I and a couple of our staff volunteers went out there one day, and we saw the situation, which was bad. So I asked the owner if we could please adopt these chickens, that we could bring in our own vans and carriers and everything, and we would gather them up and bring them back to our sanctuary. But she said we could if we would pay for them. So I tried to negotiate, you know, not paying. And my plan was that I was going to bring a check, but we were going to get the chickens and we were going to run <laughs> with them. So we did. About seven of us went there with our vans and cars, and we had our chicken pet carriers and all that. We managed to gather up all the birds and put them into the carriers, and we were in our vehicles ready to speed away and not pay. But the farmer's market people surrounded us with their vehicles and wouldn't let us out. So we weren't going to let the chickens stay there. We were not going to abandon them that way. So we ended up having to pay to get them out of there. And so we got them to our sanctuary. One of these chickens was a very large white hen, so-called boiler hen, the type who is bred for the meat industry. But she had the most terrible wounds under her wings because she had been constantly mated with by the roosters because there were too many chickens all crowded together and the chickens who are bred and raised for meat production are very, very uh, oversized birds and they can't run very well and so they're easy for roosters to just jump on continually. It's a complicated situation, but the point is that she had been constantly mated with over and over again by the roosters, and so she had these huge wounds under her wings, and she had a lot of back feathers missing. So I took her to the veterinarian. I took pictures of her, too, and I told the lady who ran the farmer's market who owned it that we were going to have these pictures blown up to poster size, and we would be standing outside that farmer's market if we ever heard that they had any more chickens there ever again, and I don't think they ever did. But anyway, I brought Sonia back to our house, and I tended her wounds, which began to heal. Sonia was just such an affectionate chicken, and she was very, very lively. She was very spirited, despite her heaviness and her injuries and the miserable life she had lived before she came to our sanctuary. And I basically kept her in our house. She was, again, very vulnerable in a lot of ways. She would actually at night sleep in a little closet right off my bedroom, and she would plod up the short hallway at night to settle down in this little special place that she had chosen herself that she wanted to sleep in every night. And then in the morning, she would go plodding down the little hallway into the kitchen, mm -hmm. and she would have her bowl of food and water all ready for her. She loved to be hugged. She loved for me to bend down, and, of course, I tended her wounds under her wings until they healed. And she just loved physical affection as well as all the attention she was receiving from me, which she certainly had never known before, but she was a very affectionate chicken. One day, something happened that was very, very distressing to me, and I was in the living room with Sonia, and I was crying. Sonia walked over to me, and I bent down, and she just walked up to me, and she put her face 
buried her face in my neck, and she just got so close to me, and I put my arms around her and hugged her. I felt very deeply that even if she didn't know why I was crying, she knew that I was very, very sad and upset, and she responded to that. And she comforted me so much that as I described to the reporter of the Washington Post who did a big profile article about United Poultry Concerns a number of years ago that I wished I could have stayed in that moment forever. She just knew that I was sad. You are listening to the Freedom of Species radio show. We are chatting today with Karen Davis, the president of United Poultry Concerns. If there's one thing I have learned about these birds is that to just say they're sociable doesn't really capture the extent to which they are in tune with one another's emotions. They have this power cross-species empathy. When you get to know them, when you allow them to reveal themselves, you find out how very, very sympathetic their natures are, that they, you know, sympathize is to feel with. That's what the term sympathize means, or empathize to feel one's way into the feelings and life of another being. Well, chickens have that capacity, and I've seen it demonstrated many times, not only amongst themselves, but as I just described in Sonia's case, also with me, it is very rewarding to me now to see and to be able to contribute to the growing field of cognitive ethology that is including other non-human animals, but also definitely chickens. And the old outmoded idea that birds in general, chickens and turkeys in particular, are stupid or simply acting on automatic, they don't have any real sensibility or intelligence and all of those stupid ideas, that those ideas are now totally discredited by science through behavioral research, through cognitive research, and all of the means that are now being brought to bear upon birds in general, and by extension all animals increasingly, and particularly chickens have caught the attention of many ethologists who are interested in finding out and demonstrating the hitherto uncredited view that chickens are intelligent and highly emotional and responsive birds. Now, I also want to say that the idea that chickens are not intelligent or that they don't have feelings, these ideas uh, have not been universally held through history. There is a whole a world of writings about chickens through history by people who have observed them from Plutarch in classical times, Algravandi during the Renaissance period. These and others have written very movingly and astutely about chickens and shown great affection for them and great enthusiasm for them. Chickens, in fact, have often been admired for their assertiveness. Certainly roosters have often been modeled for military prowess, whether one considers that good or bad. But the thing is that in the modern world, particularly in 20th century America and elsewhere in the English-speaking world, chickens began to be systematically and deliberately denigrated as the poultry industry began to consolidate and develop in the mid-20th century to create this idea that chickens are stupid and that they're just chicken. And gradually, of course, as people stopped keeping actual chickens and the industry began to be an industrial farming enterprise where the chickens were all locked up in industrial buildings, people didn't have any contact with chickens anymore. So all they knew about chickens were the lies, and the same thing about turkeys, were the lies that 
were being fed to them by the poultry industry and all of the advertising. The poultry industry even succeeded in passing laws that prevented people from keeping chickens and turkeys and ducks and geese anymore as they had hitherto done. At the same time, too, I want to emphasize that when you research the history of chicken and turkey farming, you're not going to find a very romantic picture either because chicken and turkey farming have never been compassionate, they've never been humane, and in fact, there is no such thing as humane farming when it comes to animal slaves used for that purpose, and there's certainly no such thing as humane mutilation or humane slaughter or any such thing. Everybody should know that chickens evolved in the tropical forests of Southeast Asia and the rugged uh, foothills of the Himalayan mountains where they continue to live successfully and autonomously to this day, raising their families, perching in trees at night, running around on the forest floor. They live in extended families. They have a very rich family and parental and social life together. They are beneficial to the environment. And they have excellent full-color vision. They see infrared light, which is why roosters crow in the morning when it's still dark out for us because they see infrared light. So they see sunlight, early morning sunlight, about an hour before humans do. They have excellent hearing. They're fully developed as far as their senses are concerned. They can call to each other through dense foliage for miles. And so you take a bird like that and you jump fast forward into the late 19th and 20th and 21st century and realize that these vibrant, lively birds have been shut up in sunless, dark, filthy chicken houses, battery cage houses in the case of egg-laying hens, and billions and billions of chickens right up the road. We have millions of them in these filthy, dark concentration camps where these sun-loving birds never experience even a ray of natural sunshine. You cannot describe more dramatically and accurately enough the complete misery in which these birds are living. And I have to say, turkeys too. I wrote an entire book called Prison Chickens, Poisoned Eggs, and Inside Look at the Modern Poultry Industry, which people can order directly from us a book on the turkey industry called More Than a Meal, The Turkey in History, Myth, Ritual, and Reality. And and turkeys, too, are among the liveliest birds. The turkey mother, like a chicken mother, are superlatively capable, caring mothers. Everything that they are has been stripped away from them except pain and suffering and misery. You believe that in order to be a feminist, one needs to also be an animal advocate. Anyone who has ever experienced the oppression imposed upon them by some other group, anyone who has ever felt that the full repertoire of their personality and talent has been smothered and crushed by an oppressive social system, an oppressive other, whether it's an oppressive domestic partner or whoever, should be able to extend their desire for their own liberation from that condition to the desire for the liberation of other similarly oppressed and abused and suppressed beings. And certainly one of the ironies of the feminist movement by and large is the resistance amongst the sort of establishmentarian feminist movement in many cases to the whole idea of veganism, of vegetarianism, of giving up animal products. And yet, as Carol Adams and I and others who are eco-feminist animal rights advocates have pointed out, it's ironic that women would feel that they are being oppressed by eco-feminist animal rights advocates who are urging them to stop oppressing animals on their plate. That women would want to be liberated from the abuses and disparagements that they have suffered and consider their own liberation to include their right to oppress non-human animals in various ways, but particularly we're talking about here on their plate. A further irony is that while 
a number of feminists will concede that, yes, we shouldn't be eating meat, that is the flesh of other animals. They will hold out on becoming vegan because they feel that that is just, you know, too much of a demand upon them and too much of a restriction of their own freedom to choose and so forth. And yet, the fact is that being vegan means, among other things, that you extend your compassionate living, particularly to include hens and cows, because to be vegan means that you no longer support making animals churn out eggs and milk so that you can have those products. And as I have explained in many different forums, the idea that cows give us milk, which they do not. They have to be kept pregnant constantly. Their babies are taken away from them so that the milk can be taken away and used so that humans can drink the milk and eat cheese and yogurt and all the stuff that a baby mammal is intended to have. And when the baby mammal is weaned, then we're not supposed to have baby food anymore. We're supposed to eat as adults, but it's quite ironic and pathetic that people continue to drink milk through their adult life, even though 80% of the world's population cannot even digest milk without after effects, which of course the industry then creates lactose-free milk and everything so that people will keep eating this cheese and drinking this milk. Getting back to what you were asking is that it is ironic that women will argue for the right to continue to eat cheese and eat eggs because these are the symbols of female oppression, whether that female be a hen or a human. So if you're truly a feminist, if you truly believe in the liberation with responsibilities of female beings, you have to be vegan. One of the things I tell people who say, well, I care about humans first, and I can't care about animals until humans get what they need in terms of justice. Well, first of all, it's not either or, it's both and, because we're all animals. You don't have to choose humans over animals. You should also care about animals. That, you know, I'm not going to let people take a pass on that, never. I tell people, if you really care about humans, which I know you do, that's a reason in and of itself to wash your hands of eating animals. Because if you care about humans, you should never, ever want another human being to have to walk into a slaughterhouse again to do the kind of work that a slaughterhouse worker has to do in order to get a paycheck so that you can have a suffering animal on your dinner plate. Because what happens to workers is, first of all, as you said, Emma, they are treated horribly in the industry because the poultry industry and by extension all animal production industries regard the workers themselves as just units of the production process. They receive low pay. They experience all kinds of degradations that include horrible experiences that women have described. You know, they're being at the mercy of supervisors who will try to punish them in various ways if they don't have sex with them and the kinds of things you would expect in an environment of violence and violation, but also the horrible conditions of either freezing or sweltering heat that workers experience. Virgil Butler, who worked for Price and Foods in Arkansas from 1997 until 2002, and he was a slaughterer. He slaughtered chickens night after night after night. It gets pretty bad after a while. It will desensitize a person. It desensitized me. It made me cruel and mean. I'm an ex-convict myself. I was in prison for a violent crime. You know, one day I met Laura and she kind of changed all that. She made me a better person, or helped me to make myself a better person. I don't believe I'm the only one that could come out of that place that way. I believe there are others. Let me tell you a little, a little story. One of the guys that I worked with down there, after I had um, made my statement to PETA and went to the police, by the way, when I went to the police, instead of actually taking my statement and trying to do something about it, they arrested me for a bogus crime and locked me up. You see, most of the 
Sheriff's Department in Polk County owned chicken houses, Tyson chicken houses. And uh, they're not going to take a chance of ruining their own livelihood. So, well, that kind of speaks for itself, I think. Anyhow, Aaron was at first, it, you know, extremely mad at me because I got in trouble. And uh, chances are, he probably won't ever become a vegetarian, although he might. But when I started telling him about a lot of the changes that the animal rights community wanted to make, he was interested. Not because it would help the chickens, which is, you know, our, our reason for wanting to do it, but because it would help the workers. And I believe that he's not the only one that would feel that way. I believe if these people actually knew that the changes we're asking for would help them, I believe they'd go for it. Laura Alexander, who helped to open his eyes not only to the suffering of the chickens, but opened his eyes to his own deeper feelings of compassion for the chickens that he had suppressed in order to be able to work in an environment like that. And as he subsequently wrote in his blog until he died in 2006, and he died of just in part of just the miserable life he had lived, all the medications he had to take for all of the injuries that he had sustained working in the chicken slaughter plant. But as he described it, if you wanted to kind of make things simple, although horrible, he said there, there are basically, you might say, two kinds of people working in a slaughter plant. There are the kinds of people who have sensibilities and sensitivities for the chickens, but in order to, to do that kind of a job, they have to repress their empathy. They cannot allow themselves to feel that empathy and still do that work. And they cannot allow others to think that they care for fear of being laughed at, ostracized, and kicked out, and then they would without a job. When people live in places where that's the only game in town, and they have roots there with their families and so on. In many of these very rural communities, they have no option but to work in the chicken industry. So they're scared of losing their job. Of course, many are immigrants, and they don't even want anybody to know that they're undocumented workers. So there are all kinds of fears that people who work in these industries have. They're scared that others will know that they care about the chickens. They're scared they could be deported back to Guatemala or someplace. They're scared all around. So there are people who are caring, but one of the ways they suppress their own feelings is to take all kinds of medications and to take drugs and drink alcohol in order to bear the horrible work they have to do. Then there are the kinds of people who basically have very strong sadistic tendencies in their nature who find an outlet in those industries to for their callousness and their sadism. Of course, they can visit all those horrible impulses on the chickens, and they do, as Virgil Butler very graphically described, the cruelties that people uh, visit on the chickens. What mm. Virgil Butler pointed out is not only the fact that the chickens are being subjected to powerful electric shocks, by the industry when they're dragged through the electrified water, which doesn't is, and is not intended to stun the chickens, but just paralyze the muscles of the fully conscious chickens so that their feathers will come out more easily after they're dead. So there are the industry tortures that the chickens endure, and then there are the tortures that are inflicted on the chickens by the workers in that environment because the slaughterhouse environment and as well as the chicken houses themselves where the chickens and turkeys and ducks and other animals are raised before they get to the slaughter plant. But these environments bring out the worst impulses in people, that they necessarily invite cruelty and abuse. And you cannot have a culture of violence that is nothing but a culture of violence and expect people working in those cultures to not be affected. One woman recently was quoted in, I think it was in the Daily Mail in uh, Ontario, Canada, in a recent undercover investigation of a hatchery by the organization called Mercy for Animals. She, when asked how she feels about the baby chicks that she's throwing away and who are getting caught, their little baby beaks and feet are getting caught in the 
grind up machinery and everything, she just laughed and said, I don't have any sympathy for them at all anymore. She was saying, well, what happens to you when you are in that environment? You lose your sympathy for the victims. Either that you feel that you cannot be sympathetic with them and continue to do that kind of work, or you literally lose your sympathy, and you become callous, and you become hardened, and you become even more cruel. And so to force people to have to live and do that kind of work so that you can have the experience of a dead animal on your plate, you have not thought through enough what it means to really claim that you care about humans. Because if you really care about humans, you would never, ever want to put any human being in a situation where their worst impulses are given full reign and their best impulses are suppressed or completely eliminated. Hi, it's Patty Mark from Animal Liberation Victoria on 3CR Community Radio, 855 AM. I love community radio. It's so important we keep an independent voice out there, not only for the animals, but for all humans, for the environment. And make sure you listen to Freedom of Species. It's animal activism on the airways. We are chatting today with Karen Davis, the president of United Poultry Concerns, the alliance to end chickens as caporos. How does one approach a campaign that has many cultural sensitivities? United Poultry Concerns was founded in, I founded it in 1990. Shortly afterward, I began to receive calls from people living in New York City, particularly in Brooklyn and the Bronx, who were terribly upset because right outside their windows, they said, you know, there are these flatbed trucks filled with chicken crates piled on top of each other. And these chickens are sitting out there for days at a time without food or water and completely unprotected from rain or the hot sun or whatever in the fall before Yom Kippur and in the days leading up to the Yom Kippur, or what the Jewish Day of Atonement. Most of the people who called were themselves Jewish, members of the community there. And they were horrified and totally upset and wanting to do something to help these chickens. So I began to research Kippurists, which I had never heard of, and I subsequently learned that most Jewish people weren't even aware of the practice either, which is a practice that does not even require chickens or any animals to be used in and isn't even required, at period. But you can, if you want to use a symbolic token of atonement, you can swing virtually anything over your head. Uh, coins is what most practitioners, I assume most practitioners now use, swinging over their heads if they can. That basically asks for a, a healthy and productive year in the year ahead and they can throw almost anything, but they do not need to use chickens. So I learned that in my research, and I began to incorporate an effort to educate people about the chicken caporis ritual and to try to eliminate that practice through our, our magazine, Poultry Press, and then eventually on our website and through other channels. And I found immediately that the Jewish community, who cares about animals, was rallying around our, our campaign. And I began to publish letters in newspapers, and so did other people like Bacha Bauman of Feminists for Animal Rights. And gradually, we began to find that we had a large contingency of animal advocates who were also Jewish, such as Dr. Richard Schwartz of the North American Vegetarian Society and many others who hated this practice, were embarrassed by it, who uh, kept pointing out that it is not a, a true Jewish part of a Jewish uh, mandate through the Torah or the Talmud, and hated the cruelty to the chickens and wanted it stopped. In 2010, I and a number of other people, most of them members of the Jewish community in New York City, had what I call an historic meeting in June of 2010, and there we founded the Alliance to End Chickens as Kippurus, which is dedicated to eliminating the use of chickens and any other sentient beings in the Kippur's ritual in favor of non-animate symbols of atonement. 
Now, this is not in any way intended as an anti-Semitic campaign, not at all, and it is a campaign that fits in with the mission of United Poultry Concerns. Now, one of the things about Kapoor's using chickens is that it takes place right out in the open air on the city streets, and it's a very visible abuse of chickens. It isn't something that you can just pass by and as a caring person and simply close your eyes to. I have to say that one of the people that I work most closely with as a member of the Alliance to End Chickens as Kaporis is Rena Daich, who is a lifelong animal activist in New York City, who for years on her own has been going with her camcorder into the open-air tents and filming the slaughter and arguing with the rabbis and doing all of this on her own in her part of Brooklyn, which is called Borough Park. And then two other people, David Rosenfeld and Sam Schloss, also members of the Jewish community in the area of Brooklyn known as Midwood, had been going into the chicken caporis and where the Kapoor's rallies are taking place and uh, speaking out against the holding of the chickens painfully and injuriously by their wings and swinging them by their wings and keeping them in transport crates for weeks without food, water, or shelter and treating these chickens like trash and walking around them when they're riding on the ground even with cut throats. And we have hmm. gathered more and more rabbis into the group of rabbis who are speaking out vigorously, publicly, against the use of chickens. So one of the things that the that our Alliance to End Chickens as Kapoor's campaign has done is to give more and more rabbis a voice. Rabbi Gershom, uh, Yonason Gershom, is a staunch ally and a member of the Alliance to End Chickens as Kapoor's. We have helped other people, including rabbis, in the Orthodox Jewish community to feel that there is a growing global constituency of outspoken opposition to the use of chickens in Kaporis and calling for the use of money or other non-animate symbols of atonement. That's all of the interview with Karen Davis that we'll play today. Yes, there is more that you can listen to on iTunes from an article that was in La Voce titled To Caporet or Not To Caporet. That is the question by Alexander Rubenstein, dated 22nd of September. I'll just remind you, even though it is actually not in the Torah or the Talmud, the practice of using chickens as part of this festival where they swing the chicken around the head as a symbol of atonement. In July, an animal rights group called the Alliance to End Chickens as Kaporis, along with 19 other plaintiffs, sued various city agencies and several practitioners who engage in and organise the event, including four rabbis and several Hasidic congregations. The suit alleged that the barbaric tradition constitutes a substantial public health risk that could have catastrophic and epidemic consequences and that the police and health departments aid and abet the ritual by not enforcing state and city laws for public health and against animal cruelty. On September 14th, Rosh Hashanah, New York State Supreme Court Judge Deborah James ruled that the enforcement of animal cruelty laws is discretionary and that the New York Police Department committed no wrongdoing by allowing the ritual. I quote, Beside from the Alliance, the complaint is from residents who either live or work in this neighbourhood or any of the neighbourhoods affected by Kaporos, whose lives are incredibly disrupted. This is a very unhealthy situation to have 50,000 birds illegally slaughtered in city streets. There are various health codes that are being violated. There are sanitation codes that are being violated. There are street activity permit office rules and regulations that are being violated in addition to the animal cruelty laws. We have a one community service announcement today. That's all we've got time for. The next Melbourne Pig Save Rally is on Saturday, October the 31st at 12 noon, Burke Street Mall in Melbourne. So please put that in your diary. It's a busy time of year. Uh, include it in your city trip. I'll just read from the Melbourne Pig Save website. The livestock industry, governments and retailers say one thing but do another. Producers say they love their animals. 
Governments say that exemptions to the so-called prevention of cruelty to animals legislation in favour of producers do not allow cruelty to occur. Retailers say their products are cruelty-free. All this when horrendous acts are permitted as standard practice, enshrined in the law. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.